Today's verses are from Luke chapter 4. Actually, the first one's from Deuteronomy. The second one's from Luke. Sorry about that. These are the laws which the Lord your God has told me to teach you. You are to do them in the land you are going to take for your own. Then you and your son and your grandson will fear the Lord your God. You will obey all his laws that I tell you all the days of your life. And then you will have a longer life. Here we go. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do them. Then it will go well with you. And you will become many in a land flowing with milk and honey. This is what the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Keep these words in your heart that I am telling you today. Do your best to teach them to your children. Talk about them, talk about them when you sit in your house, and when you walk on the road, and when you lie down, and when you get up. Tie them as something special to see on your hand and on your forehead. Write them beside the door of your house and on your gates. And then this is the part that's from Luke. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing all that time and became very hungry. Then the devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. But Jesus told him, No, the scriptures say, people do not live by bread alone. Then the devil took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, the devil said, because they are mine to give anyone I please. I will give it all to you if you will worship me. Jesus replied, the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, If you are the Son of God, jump off, for the scriptures say, He will order his angels to protect and guard you, and they will hold you up with their hands, so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, The scriptures also say, You must not test the Lord your God. When the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him until the next opportunity came. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you, Megan. Thank you, Katie. Uh, just as a reminder, what we're doing here uh, for all of this year and a bit of next year, I am going to be going through the Gospel of Luke. And so we are in the fourth chapter, calling it the spicy gospel because Luke is so um, spicy. He's got a lot to say that will challenge us, a lot to say that uh, really, quite frankly, we won't like once we sort of um, allow ourselves to dive into these stories. And I think today's text might be one of those. So we are going through, as Megan read, we're going through the three temptations of Jesus. We're taking them one at a time, which means that uh, we're going to do three weeks. Last week we did turn the stones into bread. 
And this week, we are going to be talking about the temptation to, I will give you all the kingdoms and their power and their glory if you will fall down and worship me. So you are caught up. The year Constantine came to power in Rome, Roman religion was still a messy polytheism of multiple gods and multiple allegiances. But a civil war had just been fought in Rome for power. And Constantine was eager to find a religion or a philosophy that could unite all of the empire and all of its diversity under a single banner. And the thing is, Constantine had plenty of options. He could have chosen Manichaeanism. He could have chosen Mithraism. He could have chosen Zoroastrianism. He could have chosen Judaism. And even Buddhism was around as an option. But instead, Constantine chose Christianity. And what's so surprising about Constantine's choice of Christianity to unite the entire Roman Empire under a single religion and philosophy is that he even, what is surprising about it, is that he even considered Christianity at all. Besides the fact that the Roman state had killed Jesus in a form of execution that was reserved basically for terrorists, besides that major factor, the other fact is that these other philosophies and the other, these other religions were bigger, they were older, they had a larger population, they had greater sticking power. They would have made more sense so much so that 2,000 years later, when Yuval Noah Harari wrote his best-selling New York Times book, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, this is what he says. He says, when Constantine assumed the throne in 306, Christianity was little more than an esoteric Eastern sect. If you were to suggest then that it was about to become the Roman state religion you'd have been laughed out of the room as you would today if you were to suggest that by the year 2050, Hare Krishna would be the state religion of the United States of America. That's how absurd it is that he would choose Christianity to unite the Roman Empire. The story goes something like this. You might be familiar with it from middle school history. The story goes that Constantine was riding into battle when he saw a vision of the cross in the sky and heard the words, conquer under this sign. Defeat your enemies, rule your enemies under the symbol of the cross. The first Roman emperor to convert to Christianity, Constantine then, from then on, sought to bring Christ's kingdom through Roman military, political, and administrative force. And the Christians loved him for it. After being persecuted for 300 years, after being a minority Roman sect that people hated, they loved him for it. He even enforced Christian morality on the empire. He forbade divorce. Got to stabilize the families, right? Got to stabilize the nuclear family. 
He ended the gladiatorial games. Christians loved him for it. And while I will personally leave the legitimacy of his conversion to God, because uh, Tom First is not God, and the last thing I want to do as a pastor with spiritual authority is wield that authority to say who belongs in the kingdom and who doesn't, I will leave it to God, but I will also criticize him and say that what he saw in Christianity was an opportunity to unify Rome under a single God to unify an empire with its various ethnicities and its multiple gods and its various allegiances under the banner of one faith, Constantine gave Christianity the opportunity to become the chaplain of the state. And Christians jumped at the opportunity. No longer was it a religion known for its resistance to Rome as it had been for the last 300 years. No longer was it a religion in solidarity with the poor as it has been for the as it had been for the last 300 years. No longer was it an exclusively nonviolent religion as it had been for the last 300 years. Now, under Constantine, Christians saw preserving the state as its chief duty. For 300 years, they were viewed as a people who were undermining the power of the Roman state. And now, all of a sudden, they turn a page, they have power, and preserving the state becomes their chief goal. It is a massive philosophical and ethical shift. We must make Rome great again you might have heard them say, which means that we must Romanize our Christianity so that we can Christianize Rome. Now, positively, the church had been suffering and persecuted for 300 years, and they now were no longer persecuted. Negatively, Christianity became so Romanized that there was, in a sense, no longer anything to call the world. Everything was baptized. The state, economy, art, rhetoric, superstition, and war were all baptized. Sound familiar? We got a Christian view of economics We've got Christian political parties, and you can't be a Christian if you don't vote for that party. And every war we fight somehow magically gets baptized under Christian rhetoric. Thus, there was a shift when Constantine took power. The question is no longer how can we survive and remain faithful Christians under Caesar. Then now the question becomes how can we adjust the church's expectations so that Caesar consider, can consider himself a faithful Christian. In short, what I would like to argue today is that the church fell prey to the second temptation of the devil. Accept all the glory and all the power of the nations while handing your allegiances over to the devil. Only here's the thing. This is what was clever. 
I like to think that maybe the devil learned. He tried to tempt Jesus with all the glory and the power and the politics, and Jesus was like, nope, not going to do it. So he modified it. He came to the church with a Jesus mask on. He says, imagine if you have power. Imagine all the good you can do. Imagine if it were the good guys ruling the world instead of the bad guys ruling the world. Sure, you might have to, you know, compromise on some of your convictions like your nonviolence. But it's worth it because your violence will be good. You'll only hurt people who deserve to be hurt. The clever thing is that when Constantine took power, the devil was wearing a Jesus mask, which is why the Constantinian church continued to speak all the right words of Christianity, but none of those words meant the same thing as they once did. Thus, we can draw a direct line from Constantine to the European churches, both Catholic and Protestant, who refused to criticize, indeed looked the other way, as the nations they baptized participated in mass rape, mass murder, mass enslavement, and human trafficking of millions of people during the colonial period, all blessed with the church's sanctions. We can draw a direct line from Constantine to the conquistadors. Conquistadors would come outside of Native American encampments. And they wanted Native American land. But they were afraid that if they took the land by violent force and killed the Native Americans, that the Native Americans who had never heard of Jesus would go to hell but they really wanted their land. So this was the conquistador solution. They stood outside the encampment and they read the gospel to the Native Americans in Latin, which none of the Native, by the way, Native Americans did not speak Latin, but they read it to them in Latin and then once they were done and the Native Americans somehow weren't convinced that Jesus was the Savior and that therefore they should give up their land, they felt okay to murder them because they'd had their chance to hear the gospel. We can draw a direct line from Constantine to the conquistadors. We can draw a direct line from Constantine to Hitler's use of lingo to manipulate the German church. And it would be so easy just to leave it at Hitler and be like, look how bad it was then. As if we cannot draw a direct line from Constantine to Billy Graham's support of Richard Nixon by having Nixon stand on stage during his crusades and say to masses of Christians, this is the guy you should vote for. Not to mention from Constantine to the name Crusades. Who in Billy Graham's PR department was like, you know what, Crusades, that sounds like a good idea. We can draw a direct line from Constantine to Ronald Reagan's claim that America is a millennial kingdom with a special role in God's plan. Really? We can draw a direct line from Constantine to George Bush the first calling America a Christian terms like a light to the nations. Suddenly the church 
with the message of Jesus is no longer the light to the nations, but now America has become baptized as a light to the nations. Thus, what we do is godly and right. Unless we think it's only Republicans who do that, President Obama did the same thing. Used the same language. We can draw a direct line from Constantine to Donald Trump's rhetoric of a mythical past where we make America great again. Really, when was America great for everyone? You see, what it does is the mythology allow, forces us, we can no longer criticize ourselves. The gospel no longer has the power to criticize us because we are the chosen people. We can draw a direct line from Constantine to Joe Biden's inability to acknowledge American sins every time he says, this is not who we are when America does something evil at home or abroad. All of these things can be tracked back to the assumption that Christ wants certain nations to rule the world, that Christ wants certain political philosophies to rule the world, that Christ wants a chosen people to rule the world, and that those chosen people only deviate by accident from that mission. A chosen people who believe themselves uniquely fit to bring God's kingdom and to establish God's authority and power in the world. And here's the irony of the whole thing. Jesus had all of this as an opportunity. And he said no. Jesus had the opportunity to start an empire. And he said no. He had an opportunity to rule the nations. And he said no. He had an opportunity to bring all of the world under his political, ethical dominion. To start the first Christian nation. And he said no. Because trying to force the politics of God on people from the top down is a violation of the actual politics of God which work from the ground up through love and service. In other words, a political philosophy that uses power, control, manipulation, violence to rule is a fundamental violation of Christianity. And therefore, Christians can never baptize it and truly be Christian. Remember that in Luke chapter 3, so we're in Luke chapter 4, chapter divisions were not written by Luke. Luke did not say, I think I'm starting chapter 4 now. Okay? Those were added by later editors, and they're helpful because we can cite chapters and verses now, but one of the weaknesses of that decision is it disconnects us from the things that immediately come before the chapter break. Remember how Luke started chapter 3 by telling us who the political rulers were. 
by telling us about these people who ruled the world through violence and manipulation and coercion. It is those people that the first readers would have had in mind when the devil offers Jesus all of their power and authority. Take power from the bad guys and give it to yourself. Luke is saying one thing very subtly here, and he's saying something else not at all subtly. Subtly, Luke is saying that these political powers are satanic. Remember what the devil said? All the authority and the power of these nations has been given, it to, given to me, and I can give it to whoever I want. And thus, not so subtly, he's saying the devil really does rule over the nations. Whatever, whatever that means, I don't know. If you want like a definition from me of what that looks like, I don't know. The point here is that Jesus never challenged that claim. Jesus is absolutely not going to give in to the temptation, but he never denies that this is in fact the realm of devilish work with a simple bow of the knee Jesus could have taken what belongs to the devil and remade it for goodness but it would not have been what God intended and again this week doesn't it sound reasonable the temptation is to something good Imagine a world where Jesus rules and there's no warfare, where everybody has plenty to eat. It's a temptation to something good. There would be no three years of hard ministry for Jesus. Jesus could have all the allegiance of the nations now, in this moment, without three years of ministry. No need for crucifixion. Jesus could have all the allegiance of the nations now without suffering. No need to crush the soul of his mother or his friends with his death. He could have the, all the allegiance of the nations now without suffering. Avoid the cross. Gain the world. That's the temptation. You get all the power and the glory and the authority. And you don't have to go to the cross for it. All he has to do is worship the God of politics and the God of national power over the God of self-giving love. All he has to do is worship the God of national security and the God of national mythologies more than the God who will lead him to the cross. Weak and, and Listen, this, this is what happens when we read the Bible. We read the Bible and we're like, we know that Jesus is right. We've been taught by our pastors that Jesus is always right, even when we don't understand it. And so we read a story like this and we're just like, yeah, you tell him, Jesus. Good job. And then we project ourselves onto that story because we are Christians, right? And we side with Jesus and we're like, yeah, just like Jesus would never do that, I would never do that. Except for 2,000 years of Christian history has told us it is exactly what we have done and it is exactly what we do now. Because when we're honest with ourselves, ruling through political power is a lot easier than making disciples of the nations 
by suffering. And so we sell out our allegiance to the gospel. We sell out our moral convictions. It's really funny, like it's so funny, and it, it happens on the right and the left. This is, this is not like a one directional criticism. But it's so funny how Christians will be like, well, you know, like they start off, we start off and we're like, you know, I'm just gonna hold my nose and vote for that guy. And then the next thing we do, and we're just like baptizing everything that guy does. Turns out maybe we just wanted to baptize from the beginning, but at the beginning, like we had enough moral conviction to know, like, maybe this is a problem. I, I can't just be honest yet. But what makes Jesus' vision of an alternative politics so powerful is that Jesus' politics is seen in scars and nails and blood in washing feet and in getting crucified. Power uh, authority in Jesus' kingdom is seen in washing feet and crucifixion. Power in Jesus' kingdom is shared. Jesus shares the power to heal the world with his disciples. He doesn't have to hoard it. Jesus could have been the ultimate one percenter. Been like, I got it all. And he's like, no, I want to give this away. I want to share this power, this ability to do these things. The devil wants Jesus to take authority and power and glory and define them all by our definitions of authority and power and glory. But Jesus completely turns it on its head and he redefines power and authority and politics around self-giving love and death. Now, I want you to notice a subtlety here in what I'm saying. This is really important. Because I know that what happens is Tom gets really fired up about things. And you're like, man, Tom hates politics and Tom hates politicians. Here's the subtlety. I am not saying that politics is bad. I'm not even saying that power is bad. I am saying that the way we use politics for the last 2,000 years has been manipulative and coercive and violent and hurtful. And that is contrary to the character of the gospel and Jesus. Power over politics is foreign even to the way we were created. Do you, do, you, do you look at the political climate of our country? Do you ever look at it and just be like, you know what? I feel like this is human flourishing at its best. <laughs> no! Because even though comparatively to history and comparatively even to other countries, uh, our insurrection attempt on January 6th is, is sort of a one-off. We, we might verbally violate one another and do violence to one another, but like at least since the 1860s, it hasn't been like actual violence toward each other, right? But even with our verbal violence, which will inevitably lead to physical violence, it will. 
even just with our verbal violence, you and I feel so much stress and angst and anger and fear over it that there's no way we were made for this. We weren't. Listen, this is one of the reasons why I, my, I, my son and I were talking about this recently, and I was just like, because he was telling me about like how he's learning in middle school about sourcing and how to cite authoritative good sources. And I was like, yes! That's not only like a good educational thing for middle schoolers, it's actually in a world like ours with verbal violence and constant angst and stress and people trying to propagandize us, it is a moral imperative for Christians to be the kind of people who understand what good sources are and what bad sources are. It matters that we know how to evaluate information in the political sphere. So I am not being all anti-politics here. I'm merely saying that although power can force obedience, only love can summon the response of love, which is the one thing God wants from us and the reason God created us. Now listen, when I say love, a group of largely white people what we're going to hear is individual love. Mm -mm. It's bigger than that. Dr. King was right. Justice is what love looks like when it's public, which means that we have to talk about justice and which means we're going to get political. So, but I want you to understand, we were create, to say we were created for love is also to say that we were created for collective justice. So it matters that we do take politics seriously, but what we cannot be is a continual perpetuation of this idea that there's a chosen nation or a chosen people who are ordained by God to rule the world through force and violence. This, this sermon, I, I feel like it's just like, you guys are like, man, this is just like a long rant by Tom. He's frustrated. <laughs> but, I am, but I am frustrated. And my frustration, I, I feel like, comes from a place of love. It baffles me, this idea that continues to gain traction in America as if we didn't learn the lesson from Germany. It baffles me, this idea of Christian nationalism, that we're going to take a nation and by force make it Christian but, but Christian in the way largely white folks wanted to be Christian, right? It baffles me that this is even something Christians would ever consider because it is absolutely the very thing Jesus rejects. Jesus could have started a nation that was a Christian nation. He could have done it. But Jesus understood that the means, the ends of his politics needed to match the means of his politics. And so if the ends of his politics are sell, a community of self-giving love, then the means of a reaching that cannot be power and coercion and violence. 
They must also be love, including love made public, which is justice. This doesn't mean that we're not political. It just means that our politics as Christians is decidedly different. Let me illustrate it this way. Uh, in 2021, so still in the pandemic when people aren't really super out and about, uh, two sociologists, David Graeber and David Wingrow, wrote a massive sociology text called, and I, I kid you not, this is uh, the most humble claim I have ever heard from academics, um, called The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity. <laughs> so they're a rewrite all of human history. And it took a big old book to do it. And it was a fantastic book. I loved it. But they're talking about, if you're going to talk about humanity, you have to talk about politics, right? This is what they said. They say that dominance behavior is hardwired into our genes. So much so that the moment society moved beyond tiny bands, it must necessarily take the form of some ruling over others. Okay, so what are they saying? They're saying as soon as you basically move outside of your immediate family, if you're going to get along with other people, it is hardwired in your genes to try to rule over other people. The assumption that some people should have power in this conversation and some people shouldn't. It is hardwired in our genes to organize ourselves for dominance. However, as sociologists... They observed that that same hardwiring happens in the animal kingdom, right? You've heard of like an alpha dog. There's a hardwiring for dominance in the DNA of other animals. So they ask, what's the difference between humanity and the animals? And the difference is not that we have a hardwiring for dominance. What they say is that the difference is that humans can choose how to arrange ourselves politically for the good of others. It's not, it, that's not always how we operate. They're merely saying what makes humans humans is that we have the choice to go against even the hardwiring of our genes. I think that this is what Jesus is doing. Jesus 100% has all the same genes that we have. All the DNA that we have. And he shows us that not only can we resist violence and political domination, not only can we resist violence and political, political domination, but as we are going to call ourselves Christians we must. This is, this is not only what makes us human, this is what makes us distinctively Christian. To opt in any way for a politics that is controlling, coercive, manipulative, violent, or dominating is fundamentally to undercut the nature of the gospel. 
in resisting the temptation of the devil to choose power over politics and to choose instead service under politics and the politics of crucifixion, Jesus is helping us imagine a world where the need to dominate each other is subsumed under the call to love and justice. So Jesus' reaction to this temptation then is not anti-politics. It's not anti-organization. What it is, is it's anti-coercive politics. It is anti-forceful organization. Jesus' reaction to this temptation is not anti-politics. It is pro-love politics, pro-justice politics. The voice of the church should be saying to everyone from Joe Biden to Jim Strickland, The systems are violent and they don't work. The church should be the voice that says, uh, there was a violent killing of a man. Somebody should not only be held accountable, but we should reevaluate the systems to make sure that they're just and loving for every member of our society. That is the role of the church. And insofar as we buy into the politics of power, we lose that voice. So no, Jesus will not worship the devil's power. He, in fact, says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Which is basically his way of saying, when God shows up, God doesn't look like Joe Biden. Doesn't even look like Jim Strickland. Doesn't look like Donald Trump. When God shows up, God's authority and power and politics look like a cross. Not a cross you see in the sky that says conquer in this sign, but a cross that says die, serve, love. That's something that Constantine never understood and it's something that the church for 2,000 years has conveniently ignored And that is why I love Luke's spicy gospel. Because this gospel has been a thorn in the side of a Constantinian church for 2,000 years. I don't know. Maybe we should start listening to Luke.